Welcome to the AK-47 Podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey, and today I am going to continue with my reading of Alexandra Kalantai's text, The Worker's Opposition. I recently read a really fascinating article about this text, and I learned that Kolontai actually paid for the publication of this text out of her own money because the party presses would not publish it because obviously it was critical of Lenin and the Bolsheviks. And so she decided that it was very important for the workers' opposition to have their platform circulated, and she paid for it on her own. So it's a very interesting history behind this document. And obviously, it was very important to Kalantai. It was important enough for her to really stake her reputation on publishing this document and then presenting it at various fora in front of Lenin and Trotsky and her other Bolshevik colleagues, for which, as I have mentioned before, she was roundly uh, punished for her transgression of criticizing the party, particularly from the left. So the section that I am going to read today is called State and Party. It is section four of the document. And she is basically reflecting on the idea that the Bolsheviks now are trying to build a worker state, the world's first worker state, using capitalists and people who were raised under capitalism and have a capitalist mentality, and that this is actually going to be a problem in the long term for the sustainability of the project. All right, so here is state and party. The party, therefore, finds itself in a difficult and embarrassing situation regarding the control over the Soviet state. It is forced to lend an ear and to adapt itself to three economically hostile groups of the population, each different in social structure. The workers demand a clear-cut, uncompromising policy a rapid forced advance towards communism. The peasantry, with its petit bourgeois proclivities and sympathies, demands different kinds of freedom, including freedom of trade and non-interference in their affairs. The latter are joined in this demand by the burgher, clad in the form of agents of Soviet officials, commissaries in the army, etc., who have already adapted themselves to the Soviet regime and sway our policy towards petite bourgeois lines. As far as the center is conceded, the influence of these petite bourgeois elements is negligible. But in the provinces and in local Soviet activity, their influence is a great and harmful one. Finally, there is still another group of men consisting of the former managers and directors of the capitalist industries. These are not the magnates of capital, whom the Soviet Republic got rid of during the first phase of the revolution, but they are the most talented servants of the capitalist system of production, the brains and genius of capitalism, its true creators and sponsors." 
heartily approving the centralist tendencies of the Soviet government in the sphere of economics, well realizing all the benefits of trustification and regulation of production. This, by the way, is being carried out by capital in all advanced industrial countries. They are striving for just one thing. They want this regulation to be carried on not through the labor organizations, the industrial unions, but by themselves, acting now under the guise of Soviet economic institutions, the central industrial committees, industrial centers of the Supreme Council of National Economy, where they are already firmly rooted. The influence of these gentlemen on the sober state policy of our leaders is great, considerably greater than is desirable. This influence is reflected in the policy which defends and cultivates bureaucratization, with no attempts to change it entirely, but just to improve it. The policy is particularly obvious in the sphere of our foreign trade with the capitalist states, which is just beginning to spring up. These commercial relations are carried on over the heads of the Russian as well as the foreign organized workers. It finds its expression also in a whole series of measures restricting the self-activity of the masses and giving the initiative to these scions of the capitalist world. Among all these various groups of the population, our party, by trying to find a middle ground, is compelled to steer a course which does not jeopardize the unity of the state's interests. The clear-cut policy of our party in the process of identifying itself with the Soviet state institutions is being gradually transformed into an upper-class policy, which in essence is nothing else but an adaption of our directing centers to the heterogeneous and irreconcilable interests of a socially different mixed population. This adaptation leads to inevitable vacillation, fluctuations, deflations, and mistakes. It is only necessary to recall the zigzag-like road of our policy towards the peasantry, which, from thanking on the poor peasant, brought us to placing reliance on the industrious peasant owner. Let us admit that this policy is proof of the political soberness and statecraft wisdom of our directing centers. But the future historian, analyzing without bias the stages of our domination, will find and point out that in this is evident a dangerous digression from the class line towards adaptation and a course full of harmful possibilities or results. Let us again take the question of foreign trade. There exists in our policy an obvious duplicity. This is attested by the constant unending friction between the Commissariat of Foreign Trade and the Commissariat of Foreign Affairs. This friction is not of administrative nature alone. Its cause lies deeper. And if the secret work of the directing centers were exposed to the view of rank-and-file elements, who knows what the controversy dividing the Commissariat of Foreign Affairs and the trade representatives abroad might lead to? 
This seemingly administrative fiction is essentially a serious, deep social friction concealed from the rank and file and makes it absolutely necessary for Soviet politics to adapt to the three heterogeneous social groups of the population, workers, peasants, and representatives of the former bourgeoisie. This constitutes another cause bringing a crisis into our party, and we cannot but pay attention to this cause. It is too characteristic, too pregnant with possibilities. It is therefore the duty of our party, on behalf of party unity and future activity, to ponder over this cause and to learn the necessary lessons from the widespread dissatisfaction generated by it in the rank and file. Okay, so that section is really Kolontai kind of understanding here that the centralization of industry in the Soviet Union after war communism, during the new economic policy, this idea of building trusts, the trustification, basically big state monopolies. This is exactly what the capitalists want to do at this period of time in the advanced industrialized countries. You know, before antitrust legislation, these big trusts like the Carnegie's and the Mellon's and, you know, these J.P. Morgan, these big conglomerates big, massive monopolies. That was how capitalism was functioning. And essentially what Kolontai says is the capitalists, the remaining capitalists, the kind of crypto capitalists that are still out there in Soviet society, hiding among the Soviet officials and hiding among the foremen in the factories, they actually see trustification in their own interests. They actually believe that capitalism works best when it has monopolistic control over the economy. So Lenin and Trotsky and the other Bolsheviks here are basically, as far as Kolontai and the workers' opposition are concerned, they're sort of feeding into this idea of what will eventually be called state capitalism. You know, many people who criticize the Soviet Union, especially people on the left who say that the Soviet Union never actually instituted communism, that, it, you know, it was it, it, they had nothing to do with communism. Basically, the Soviet Union was just state capitalism. In fact, this is what Kolontai is saying in this last section, that, that the party in order to balance the interests of the workers and the peasants and the former bourgeoisie is basically trending in the direction of state capitalism. And she uses the example of foreign trade to show how the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the Ministry of Foreign Trade, the the commissariats, are making decisions without really consulting or caring about the workers, the rank-and-file party members who actually created the revolution in the first place. So now Section 5 of the workers' opposition is called The Masses Are Not Blind. And basically here, Kolontai is going to show very clearly that there's a lot of dissatisfaction among the very workers who created this revolution in the Soviet Union in the first place to create this first worker state. Okay. As long as the working class during the first period of the revolution felt itself to be only bearer of communism, there was perfect unanimity in the party. 
In the days immediately following the October Revolution, none could even think of ups as something different from downs. For in those days, the advanced workers were busily engaged in realizing point after point in our class communist program. The peasant who received the land did not at the time assert himself as part of and a full-fledged citizen of the Soviet Republic. Intellectuals, specialists, men of affairs, the entire petit bourgeois class, and pseudo-specialists at present climbing up the Soviet ladder, rung by rung under the guise of specialists, stepped aside, watching and waiting, but meanwhile giving freedom to the advanced working masses to develop their creative abilities. At present, however, it is just the other way. The worker feels, sees, and revises at every step that specialist and, what is worse, untrained, illiterate pseudo-specialists and unpractical men throw out the worker and fill up all the high administrative posts of our industrial and economic institutions. And the party, instead of putting the brakes on this tendency from the elements which are altogether foreign to the working class and communism encourages it. The party seeks salvation from the industrial chaos, not in the workers, but in these very elements. Not in the workers, not in their union organizations does the party repose its trust, but in these elements. The working masses feel it, and instead of unanimity and unity in the party, there appears a break. The masses are not blind." Whatever words the most popular leaders might use in order to conceal their deviation from a clear-cut class policy, whatever the compromises made with the peasants and world capitalism, and whatever the trust that the leaders place in the disciples of the capitalist system of production, the working masses feel when the digression begins. The workers may cherish an ardent affection and love for such personalities as Lenin. They may be fascinated by the incomparable flowery eloquence of Trotsky and his organizing abilities. They may revere a number of other leaders as leaders. But when the masses feel that they and their class are not trusted, it is quite natural that they say, no, halt, We refuse to follow you blindly. Let us examine the situation. Your policy of picking out the middle ground between three socially opposed groups is a wise one indeed, but it smacks of the well-tried and familiar adaptation and opportunism. Today we may gain something with the help of your sober policy, but let us beware lest we find ourselves on a wrong road that— Those zigzags and turns will lead from the future to the debris of the past. Distrust of the workers by the leaders is steadily growing. The more sober these leaders get, the more clever statesmen they become with their policy of sliding over the blade of a sharp knife between communism and compromise with the bourgeois past, the deeper becomes the abyss between the ups and the downs, the less understanding there is, and the more painful and inevitable becomes the crisis within the party itself." 
The third reason enhancing the crisis in the party is that, in fact, during these three years of the revolution, the economic situation of the working class, of those who work in factories and mills, has not only not been improved, but has become more unbearable. This nobody dares to deny. The suppressed and widely spread dissatisfaction among workers, workers, mind you, has a real justification. All right, I'm going to stop there. This is a very stinging criticism of Lenin and Trotsky. She is basically saying that they have lost touch with the workers. These men who basically instituted the revolution in order to lift up the workers, to improve the lives of the workers, have in fact presided over a state that has not improved the lives of the workers and in fact is growing distrustful of those workers. This is a really deep critique, and you can really understand here, first of all, why Colin Ty got into so much trouble writing it, but also why it was published abroad, as I mentioned in an earlier episode, as a critique of the Bolsheviks, and why anarchists today really look at this text and say, you see, the workers' opposition understood quite clearly very early in the Soviet regime that what Lenin and Trotsky were doing was building a kind of state capitalism rather than a real, true sort of communist society. And I think that's a really important critique. I, I, I think there's something really valuable in going back and reading this document and understanding that Kolontai gave voice to a very deep frustration that was being felt at this early moment, even before Stalin takes over, this very early moment in the revolution, where she sees that for the sake of political expediency, Lenin and Trotsky and the other leaders are basically trying to find a compromise between the workers and the peasants and the members of the former bourgeoisie. They need those former members of the bourgeoisie as specialists in order to restart industry. And what Kolontai is saying is that, no, you don't need those specialists. Let the workers be creative. Let the workers find their own way through to building a communist society. Don't use the methods of capitalism. Don't use the methods of the bourgeois past. Let's forge a different way into the future. So we'll continue reading the next section, Who Has Gained from the Revolution, in the next episode. And, you know, things are really kind of heating up in this document, obviously. I think there's a lot of really great insights to be found here. And I'm really excited about having the opportunity to to read it, even though it's been a kind of crazy moment in my life. And I'm still doing a lot of media and I'm traveling for the book tour for Everyday Utopia. But it's been great. I've been getting a lot of good feedback. I I really am excited to be out there in the world and, and trying to talk to people about different ways of imagining our private lives, our domestic spheres, in, in a very sort of almost Kolontian way. So I'm going to definitely continue reading. And I want to thank you all, as always, for sticking with me as I post these episodes just uh, whenever I get around to actually recording and editing and all that good stuff. But please, as I have said before, share this podcast, you know, rate it, review it, share it, do whatever it is that you need to do to, to get the word out there. 
I think that especially the workers' opposition is a document that deserves to be revisited these days. And as always, thank you so much for listening and keep up the good fight. Thank you.